really appreciate Adam leading that song before we get into this morning's lesson because it is so fitting a song for what we're going to talk about. The past couple of years have included some very perilous, very troubling, very tumultuous, even downright desperate times. Desperate times that have definitely put our faith to the test. Put our faith to the test in many ways. From the pandemic to the culture wars and everything that society is going along with and doing, to the Ukrainian crisis, to everything that's been on our prayer list for the last couple of years, and a whole lot more. In addition to those things, we are certainly seeing and experiencing the painful fulfillment of what God said would happen through his divinely inspired Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, wherein he said that in the latter days, people become lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, and that's that pride we talked about recently, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and that's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 4. But here's the thing. While we are living in very troubling, despairing times, we as Christians are also living <coughs> by faith, and that makes all the difference, as the song we just sung proclaims. We are living by faith, no matter what today, or tomorrow, or yesterday, or the days to follow might bring or bring down upon us. We sing the song, and we indeed are living by faith. And that is a faith no matter what man, or life, or the devil himself may seek to bring against us. I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 91, verses 1 through 6. So I want you to, to listen to this and just let it wash over you. Psalm 91, verses 1 through 6 says this. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God. In him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. His truth 
can talk about that at length this morning. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Walking by faith with God is a walk whereby we do not have to fear. As the psalmist so beautifully proclaimed in probably one of my, certainly one of my all-time leading in my mind psalms, the one that I go to so often, Psalm 46, 1 through 3, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Goes on to say, therefore, we will not fear. Even though the, the, the earth, <coughs> excuse me, the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried away into the midst of the sea, though its waters foam and roar and are troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, even though <coughs> all of these things, the mountains disappearing and all those things that says no. I don't have to fear. God is my refuge and God is my strength. And once again, I'm reminded of the reassurance in Hebrews chapter 13, 5 and 6, where God says, never will I leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so the question this morning that I'd, I'd like for us all to answer, because it is so beneficial to each one of us individually, is this. How do we acquire and develop and mature and then enjoy that kind of faith, that kind of deep and abiding faith, that kind of deep and abiding, abiding faith that so easily and joyfully overcomes and displaces the discouragement and the depression that we are sometimes tempted to feel in our surrounding circumstances. How do we, how do we get and, and fan the flames of it and grow strong that faith that will help us to overcome all of the, the, the things around us that are so troubling, all that is so wrong and painful and, and sinful and seemingly getting worse in our world. How, how do we do that? I want that kind of faith, don't you? The kind of faith the psalmist talked about, I want that kind of faith. How do I get it? The answer is so easy. The answer is so incredibly easy, it's easy to dismiss. The answer is simple. By spending more time in our Bibles. It's that simple. It really, truly, God said, that's how it worked. By spending more of our time and focus, focus and energy on God and the good news in his word. I have come to the conclusion, <clears throat> since we became Christians in 1985, yes, back in the dark ages, right, for some of you. <laughs> I have come to the conclusion that it is not those Christians with the least amount of problems 
that seem to be the most powerful and faithful and joyous when they're undergoing things. It's not those Christians with the least amount of problems. It is those Christians with the most amount of the word of God in their heads that make it through those problems the easiest. I want a faith like that that will carry me through the toughest time. So where do I get it? I'll, I'll tell you, and I've already told you. That kind of faith, God's not going to go zap and bang and you got it and you got it. That's not the way it works. We know that. That only comes through our spending more time with God and his word. And that's exactly what God told us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. We all know the verse. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's where that faith comes from. That's what God said. It doesn't come from anywhere else. Right? Is that right? That's right. That's what he said. Not only that, but he told us in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, this little nugget. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Not only did God tell us in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 that our faith would be grown, that our faith would come by, by being in the word, he also tells us in this passage in Romans 15 and verse 4 that, that our ability to be patient and confident, confident and to have comfort and hope comes also from what we learn in the scriptures. That's where it all starts. That's where it all ends. That's where it all comes from. And so the message this morning, message this morning is meant to give us that comfort. The message this morning is meant to give us comfort in light of the very trying things that we have been, that we still are, and that we are going to have to continue to go through in order to help us all grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord as these things that we go through are designed to put our faith to the test and to help it grow strong. And I want to comfort us in that this morning. The message is not only meant to give us comfort, but the message is meant to do that by reminding us that God knows and he always has. He knew before time began about the trials of the past two years. Is that right? Did God know about the trials of the past two years before, before we ever got here? Yes, he did. Before time began. Yes, he did. Yeah. God knows about the trials of the next two years, doesn't he? And every year after that, doesn't he? He's God. He knows about them all. Nothing surprises him. We can sometimes be surprised, but nothing surprises God. If somebody had told you five years ago that we were going to have this worldwide pandemic that would do everything it's done, you would have thought they were out of their minds. Guess what? Didn't surprise God. And neither will tomorrow's trials or next week's trials or any other trials. God knew before time began about each trial of each day that each one of his people would ever face and how to overcome them. But, okay, okay, Doug, all right. You might ask yourself this question. Okay. But 
how can I know for sure that God even exists? You know, Doug, you want to get up front and you want to talk about how God knows all of this stuff and, and, and that's all well and good, but, but how can I know for sure that God is even there? How can I know that God even exists? How can, how can I know that he's even real, let alone that, that he knew what was going to happen and, and he wants to walk through my trial and, and comfort me through my struggles? How, how, how do I even know he's there? Legitimate question. Once again, the answer is easy. Once again, the answer is so incredibly easy and simple that it might be easy to overlook. The answer is the same. Faith or trust in God comes only through diligent and consistent Bible study. That's where it comes from. By seeking and learning and taking to heart how and what God did and said and knew that nobody else could ever have known and said and done at that time. That's where we come to understand that God is real. That God knew things and said things and did things when nobody else could have possibly known that that was what was going to happen. Nobody else could have possibly known that that was going to be said and done at that point in time. Nobody. Nobody. That's how we know God is real. As we've covered in the Sunday morning adult class now for a while, we talked about the, the last week of Christ's life. And recently, in, in a few of the, the more recent classes, we have talked about how 1,000 years or so prior to the crucifixion of Christ, 1,000 years before it ever happened, how God himself foretold a number of the exact words that would be spoken and the specific events that would take place on that horrific Friday morning a thousand years before they ever happened. We begin with, for those of you that are not part of that class, just a review of, of a couple, then we'll go to something else. In Psalm 22 and verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the word, exactly what Jesus would say on the cross roughly a thousand years later, as recorded by Matthew in Matthew 27, 46, in Mark 15 and verse 34. As we move on in, in the 22nd Psalm, we would notice verses 7 and 8 that say, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. A thousand years before those people ever said those words, God said, this is what they're going to say. And Matthew and Mark and Luke covered this extensively, how those are the very things that were said on that fatal Friday morning. Matthew 27, 39 through 43. Mark 15, 29 through 32. And Luke 23, 35 through 39. 
We move on in Psalm 22 a little ways further. Verses 14 and 15 say this. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. As we consider that and we consider that Psalm 22 is a messianic prophecy psalm, it's, it's filled with things that would be said and done that Friday morning. We're reminded of Jesus scourging. We're reminded of Jesus being nailed to that cross. We're reminded that even though he didn't drink the sour wine at first, at the very end, as we read in John this morning, he did, and, and how parched he was because of the beating and the crucifixion and, and, and all that he had been through. Check this out. In Psalm 22, same Psalm, verse 16, it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand years before it ever happened, and I use that term roughly, they pierced my hands and my feet. And notice it's in the past tense because it's guaranteed that's the way it's going to be. It's in the past tense because when God says that's what's going to happen, it's a done deal. God operates above time. We move on to verse 17 of Psalm 22, and it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that's exactly what happened with Jesus. They cast lots for his clothing, and they all go into detail about this. And here it's in the present tense, because again, God operates above time, and it's a done deal like it was happening that very day, a thousand years before it ever happened. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Of course, that doesn't count all of the other very specific statements and events that would take place on that fateful Friday morning as, as foretold specifically in the book of Psalms, and I can't go through all of them, but I can list a couple for you. In Psalm 34 and verse 20, it tells us no bone of him would be broken. A thousand years beforehand. Listen, when they crucified people, we, we've talked about this, as they're on the cross, they have to raise up in order to breathe. And, and the reason their legs would be broken is so that they couldn't raise themselves up. And, and yet God knew that when his son was crucified that, that he'd only be on that cross for about six hours and, and he, would, he would surrender up his spirit and, and no bone of him would be broken. And, and we're told that in the New Testament in John 19, 36, but God said it a thousand years earlier in Psalm 34, um, sorry, Psalm, yeah, 3420. In Psalm 69 and verse 21, it's told how he would be given gall or vinegar to drink, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all confirm that as being the case. I'm going to have you turn to this one because I want you to just look at the love, the love of our God. You know, in Psalm 109, and I'm going to ask you to open your Bible there, in Psalm 109, it tells how he would lovingly pray even while being abused by those who hated him. Psalm 109, beginning at verse 1, says, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. 
Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. And, and, and as I read that, I can't help but think of Jesus that morning. All he's ever done is love people. He's never sinned. He's never committed one single sin. He is sinless. He, he, is, he is love in the flesh. God is love. Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus is love. And, and, and he just loved people. And, and how that morning as they nailed him to the cross, he prayed in Luke 23 and verse 34, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and, and this foreshadows that with our Lord and Savior. Listen, here's the thing. It's hard to remember what happened a thousand years in the past, even though it is history, right? If I were to ask you what happened a thousand years ago in history, how many of you could jump right on that with about six events? And that's already passed. We know that. And my point is, if it's that hard to even remember what happened a thousand years ago in history, how much more difficult is it to predict a thousand years in advance to the very word what would be said on that Friday morning? That only God could do that. And if you can read that and say there is no God, you ain't reading it. I'll tell you what happened a thousand years ago, because I looked it up. I was curious. I thought, I'm going to ask them. I might as well look it up. A thousand years ago, Leif Erikson, the Viking, discovered North America. In the year 1009, roughly a thousand years ago, the Muslims destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which became a rallying point from which the Crusades would follow. That was in 1009. In 1024, which was real close to a thousand years ago, the Chinese distributed the first paper money. And finally, in the year 1040, roughly a thousand years ago, Macbeth murdered Duncan, the king of Scotland. You know, a lot can happen in a thousand years. A lot can happen in 10 years, can it? Or 50, think of some of the things you as a child Never thought could possibly happen that have today, i.e. cell phones, pocket computers, laser surgery. A lot can happen in a lifetime, but a thousand years. And you're dealing with all kinds of people's free will and, and, and all of these things. Can you imagine Macbeth or Leif Erikson or any of those living a thousand years ago, uh, listen, this is, this is crucial, this is crucial. Can you imagine any of those men who lived a thousand years ago, particularly the ones I mentioned, being able to accurately and specifically predict word for word and act for act the very words and actions of those who would perpetrate the Sunday morning attack on Pearl Harbor? You think Leif Erikson could tell you word for word what those officers said to their subordinates that, that morning before Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, was attacked? Now, of course they couldn't. Do you suppose that any of those people that lived a thousand years ago could specifically tell you word for word and act for act what those terrorists would say to each other when they entered the airport September the 11th of 2001, what their conversation would be about some of the very things they would talk about. Of course not, you say it's ridiculous, they couldn't. That's right, they couldn't. But that is akin to what God did a thousand years ago when he gave you the very words and events of that Friday morning. God knew, that tells you God's real. Don't you ever lose sight of that. God did what nobody else could do. 
Let's move up in history. Let's move up only a mere 700 years. 700 years before the crucifixion ever took place, before Jesus was ever born to Mary, before, before any of that ever happened, before the baby was there in the manger. Roughly 700 years prior to that, the prophet Isaiah, because God told him, the prophet Isaiah told of the virgin birth, didn't he? The prophet Isaiah told of how he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And he gave us all the incredible details 700 years before it happened of the very events of the crucifixion morning. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Look, look at what Isaiah said. We'll, we won't go with the Psalms around roughly 1,000 years. We'll go with Isaiah, roughly 700 years. That'd be a little easier, right? 700 years rather than 1,000, you know. Isaiah 53, verse 3, talks about that Friday morning. He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There is no way that 700 years before the fact anybody could have known that unless there is a God who told them. A God who operates above time. And there is so much of this in the Old Testament. We would be here till well after the tri-state bus leaves if I went through all of these. But, and we're familiar with, with Isaiah and we're familiar with Psalm 22, especially of late. I've talked about that a lot. But, but there are other passages. We, we talked about this one in the adult class this morning. We know that Jesus was but on the cross, we know the first three hours there was a lot of chatter back. Uh, there was a lot of, of, of complaints and insults and mocking done to him. But we know at noontime, as we talked about this morning, the darkness came upon the whole land. And, and there were some who, most all of them, none of them seemed to understand what it was all about there, at least at the beginning. And people have said since then it's an eclipse and all of that. But listen, God himself told us he was going to do that. And we covered this again in the adult class. Amos chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. God said, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. I will make it like morning for an only sun, and its end like a bitter day. In the days of Amos, hundreds of years before it ever happened, God said, That day right there, I'm going to make the sun go down at noon. Specific to the moment. For the remainder of this lesson, though, what's left of our time this morning, I want to go to another. Maybe lesser known and studied, probably a little bit more obscure 
prophet's book, one we don't study out of much. And I hope that we will see and come to imprint upon and store up in our psychological hard drives for the next hard time we have or the next tough test that we face this same lesson. And that lesson again is God is all-seeing, God is all-knowing, and God is all-comforting. And God wants us to know that he is there, and he wants us to understand his presence in our lives, no matter what test or difficulty we may be facing. Brethren, if we read from these passages, we understand that God knew all of this beforehand and how, how nobody but God could do that. It reinforces the reality of God to us. This is how God tells us, yes, I'm here and I'm real. This is one of the ways he tells us, I am here. And I knew that was going to happen and I knew you were going to struggle with that and, and I knew the exact events. But I'm still with you, for never will I leave you nor forsake you. Isn't God awesome? That book is two books before Matthew. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of the last Old Testament prophets, and it is Zechariah. Not Zephaniah, but Zechariah. Two books before Matthew. Please turn there. As I mentioned a short time ago in the adult class, there are 29, I went back and looked it up, there's actually 29 Zechariahs that are accounted for in the scriptures. <laughs> this particular Zechariah is a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, whose ministry went from about 520 to 480 B.C. He, he lived around 500 years before Christ. About 520 to 480 was his, was his ministry. As Brother Dan Jenkins writes in his article, Zechariah, the fountain of sin opened. He says, after being in Babylon for 70 years, the Jews had returned to rebuild Jerusalem and restore the worship of God in the new temple they had built. Jehovah sent his final three Old Testament prophets to finish delivering that covenant. And then for the next 400 plus years, he was silent. The last three books of the Old Testament are filled with great truths, Zechariah, the longest of these books, ends with many prophecies regarding the coming of Jesus. And I would add, not only is the end of Zechariah filled with prophecies of the coming Christ, there's a number of them at the beginning and throughout as well. For example, if you're with me in the book of Zechariah, take a look at chapter 1 and verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy, my house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Okay. God says in verse 16 that his house is going to be established, going to be built in Jerusalem, right? The New Testament tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 that the church is the house of God, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 also tell us that the word will go out of Jerusalem. This text says that the Lord's house will be built in Jerusalem. We know that the church is the Lord's house. By the way, guess where the church started? The church of our Lord started on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD when Peter preached the first gospel sermon in Jerusalem. 
Just like Zechariah 1.16 says, Zechariah 1.16, my house shall be built in Jerusalem. Peter stands up that day and preaches the first gospel sermon and opens up the church of our Lord by saying that all of those who repent and are baptized for the forgiveness of their sins can become part of that church. Boom. Zechariah 1.16, God foretold that. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This passage assures us of that coming and establishment of the New Testament kingdom or church. Does God dwell amongst his people in the church? Yes. This is the same promise that we see in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and Hosea 1.10 and 2.23. Same promise is listed there. This promise that sees its fulfillment as the writer of Hebrews talks about. In Hebrews chapter 8 and Romans 9, what is the point? Back in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, God told about this establishment of this people that would come from all nations, as it says in Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, how they will come from all nations and he will be their God and they will be his people. And if I had time to read all those texts I just cited to you, they would come together beautifully. Let me read just one to you that proves that the church is that. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18. For you are the temple of the living God. Talking to the church in Corinth, the church of Christ in the first century. For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Zechariah 2, 10, and 11 foretells God's people, Christians, the church, his son's church, and his relationship to them 500 years before the church was ever seen and established. In Zechariah chapter 3, and I'd like to read the whole chapter, but I won't for time's sake. In Zechariah chapter 3, in this promise or prophecy, it's only those 10 verses, we see the angel of the Lord, which as we know is Jesus in the Old Testament, taking away the filthy robes and the iniquities of Joshua, Joshua representing the priesthood. We see the angel of the Lord there as the priesthood is made clean once again. And we see this angel of the Lord again, who is Jesus in the Old Testament, that's another study, but that's who it is, encouraging Joshua the priest, once clean to stay that way. And as we look at that, we understand that that is a prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament because we are a royal priesthood. Is that right? That's what Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 2, right? We are a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a chosen people, a holy priesthood, and a royal nation. And we are all priests to God, according to that passage, and once we are made clean by the blood of Christ, we're told in 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22, don't go back into the world and get dirty. Same thing the, the priesthood is shown here in Zechariah chapter 3 as doing. 
you're cleaned up, now stay that way. I'm, I'm gonna have you re-cleaned. I'm gonna make everything right between you and me, take his filthy robes off of him, put the new robes on him. When we get those new robes, we, like Joshua here, the priest, are told to keep them clean. We move on to Zechariah chapter six. If you'll move there with me, look at verses 12 and 13. All of this, 500 years before the church was ever established, before Christ would ever come, God said this way, this is gonna work. Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. You will recall that Jesus is, is the branch, according to Isaiah. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne, and he shall be a priest on his throne, and a council of peace shall be between them both. Jesus came to build the house of the Lord, Luke 1, 26 through 33. And today he rules over his house as the only high priest. Is that not correct? Just what Zechariah said was going to happen here. He would build the house of the Lord. That is his church. He gets all the glory in the church. How many times do we see to Christ be the glory, to God be the glory? And he sits and he rules on his throne. He is our high priest, and he is also the council of peace between the Jews and the Gentiles, right? Ephesians 2, we're all one. Zechariah told that was going to happen 500 years before it ever did. And as we near the end of this book, we would notice several other stunningly accurate and specific prophecies of things that would be done to the Son of God during the crucifixion week. Look with me in Zechariah 9 and verse 9. <laughs> 500 years before it happened. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this as taking place. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, he came in on the foal of a donkey. 500 years earlier, God said that's what's going to happen. You, do want to tell, you want to stand there and tell me there is no God? You want to tell me these were really good guesses? You want any credibility at all? <laughs> Everything from the Savior being sold into the hands of his foes for exactly 30 pieces of silver, and then that money being used to purchase the potter's field in Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. You remember that. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver, and then that money, when Judas threw it back, was used to purchase the potter's field, and Judas went out there and hanged himself. You know the story, right? Zechariah told us in two verses that was going to happen 500 years before it ever did in Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. In Zechariah 12, in verse 10, talks about him showing his grace as he poured out his spirit upon those who pierced him when they would mourn and grieve as for firstborn son. Of course, that happened on the day of Pentecost when, when Peter said, you with the, with the help of lawless men put him to death. These people who were responsible, God poured out his love and mercy on. 
those who pierced him. Everything to the great shepherds being smitten and his sheep scattered that night. Oh, by the way, that's in Zechariah 13 and verse 7. All of these events are accurately and specifically foreshadowed and foretold by the God of heaven some 500 years before they ever happened. And, and folks, it's only as we study these things, it's only as we dig into the word of God, it's only as we learn these facts and we study them and, and we incorporate them into our psyche that our faith grows and our, our faith and trust in God's power and God's presence and God's knowledge and God's deliverance and God's ability to see us through the toughest of times increases. That's what does it. There is no way you can honestly get in here and look at these facts and everything God said was going to happen so long before it ever did to the word, to the day, to the moment. There's no way anybody could have known this unless God is there. And it is only as we study and we internalize these things, how, how God knows everything before it ever happens, and how he seeks to prepare us for them, and how he wants, us, wants to walk through them with us. Isn't that awesome? God knows what's coming in your future. God knows what's behind you. He knows what's coming. And, and God, through the scriptures, he wants to give you comfort, and he wants to give you hope, and he wants to give you encouragement, and he wants to give you strength, and he, he wants to give you a belief in, in who he is and what he wants to do for you. And, and God, this morning, is seeking to prepare us for the next, the next crisis by, by letting us know, yes, I'm real. Yes, I'm here. Yes, I know it's coming. Yes, I want to help you. It's only as we understand his power, presence, knowledge, and deliverance, his ability to see us through the toughest of times as we internalize. He knows everything before it happens. He wants to prepare us for them, and he wants to walk through them with us. What a God. What a God. I love the concluding remarks by Brother Dan Jenkins in that article I cited earlier. Listen to these three paragraphs. And, and turn there and check it out as I read this. Some remarkable truths are revealed in Zechariah 13. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Verse 1. Brother Jenkins says, they killed his son. And his response was to open a fountain of blood to wash their sins away. That blows my mind still. That's exactly what happened. And, and I'm going to repeat it. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. They, they killed his son and he said, I'm going I'm to use that blood to cleanse their sins, the very killers of my son. Listen, you and I are as responsible for the death of Jesus as the ones who drove the nails because our sins put him there too. And God said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do about that. I'm going to forgive you if you let me. Brother Jenkins, second paragraph, he says, look at the next verse. 
It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. In one brief sentence, God shows that demon possession would come to an end when he opened the fountain for sin. There is no need for exorcists in our day because demon possession came to an end. Often we go to 1 Corinthians 13 and we have to explain about the miraculous gifts, we have to explain about how demons are, are no longer a reality today and all that. It's right there in Zechariah. Chapter 13, verse 2. God said, I'm going to bring that to an end. When he brings the prophets to an end, he's going to bring the demon possession to an end. Pretty simple. It's not real hard. It's, it's right there. And the prophets came to an end. When the last book of the New Testament was completed, we don't need prophets anymore because we have the entire revealed will of God. So we don't have prophets today, those who, who will foretell the future events that God's going to bring us to because everything we need, God said in the book, is in the book that God said. This fountain, this fountain that is discussed, in verse 1 of chapter 13, that fountain of blood that Zechariah told us about five centuries before that fountain was opened up on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In 33 AD, when the Apostle Peter preached that first gospel sermon, he preached about that fountain of blood that, that God had opened up, didn't put it in those terms. But there's this, this fountain that is there to wash away our sins, to make us clean and holy for all who will come to it. And it is still open and flowing today for all who believe and trust enough to be born again of the water and the spirit, just as Jesus said we must in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 36, yes, including verse 16 in the context. That fountain is still there to wash away our sins. Saul of Tarsus was told in Acts 22 and verse 16, why, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism is is where we have our sins washed away. That's what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and verse 38. That opportunity is going to be yours in a moment if you've never been baptized specifically for the forgiveness of your sins and, and taken advantage of that fountain of blood that God offers through his son to do that. But, but there's a second part of the invitation. If you're still open here to Zechariah, I want you to see this. If you've already done that, Zechariah 13 and verse 9 talks about a minority. Hmm, didn't I read something about a narrow way and few there be who find it? Yeah, Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount. Zechariah 13, 9 talks about how there'll be this one-third or this minority who have been to that fountain. But you know what's going to happen for them? The testing is going to continue. You know what that says if you're a Christian? Not just the hard times of the last two years, the last 20 years, hard times are going to continue and the tests are going to keep coming. In fact, look at Zechariah 13, 9, and then we'll close. It says, I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Right there in one verse in Zechariah 13, 9, you see that those who belong to God are going to continue to be tested by fire. 
Yeah, the last two years have been difficult. The next two probably will be too. Probably the two, 10, 20, 40, 60 after that will be too. But the Christian gets to live by faith and not only that, but, but we see the tests are coming and so we go to God in prayer for help to get through those tests. This morning, if you have never availed yourself of that fountain of blood and you need to be baptized, you need to know absolutely your sins are forgiven according to the word of God and not what some man has said. Or if you're one of those Christians who fits under verse 9 of Zechariah 13 and, and, and it's been so hard, you've, you've almost lost your foothold on your faith. You've, you've, you've struggled mightily and you just need God's strength for whatever the future holds because the tests are going to continue. We'll pray for you now. If you have any of those needs or any other needs, come and let us know. We're here to help. That's what the church is for. Please let us know as we stand and sing right now.